You never have exchanges hold assets. And how many exchanges have we seen blow up that were holding assets, right? I mean, Mt. Gox, right? Coincheck, Rodriguez EX, um, Bitfinex was hacked. I mean, all these guys, right? And and why is that? Are they are they bad? Is it fundamentally destined to be that way? No. It turns out security of assets, you know, is hard. Um, it's a specialized function. But more importantly, it's checks and balances, right? Pretty much every single exchange hack, all the way back to, to Mt. Gox, if you had separated the function of the exchange from the storage of the assets, you would have somebody to be able to tell you whether or not the assets were in were there. You would know much more in advance. Hey folks, this is Jason Yanowitz from Blockworks and you're listening to Empire. Today, I sat down with Mike Belshi, who is the CEO and co-founder of BitGo, one of the largest custodians and now prime brokers in the crypto space. But Mike has a phenomenal story before that. Uh, we dug into what it was like working for Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen at Netscape. At one point he held over, I think it was $20 million worth of Bitcoin in his couch. So that's a pretty crazy story that I think you'll enjoy. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, do so now. That's at blockworks.co. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, hit the subscribe button on Apple and Spotify. And if you're listening on YouTube, you know what to do. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Mike Belshi, the CEO and co-founder of BitGo. Mike, I'm so excited for this podcast. We have been working with BitGo since really Blockworks was created and you've always been a, a really kind supporter of what we're doing. You have an amazing story. Um, there's, there's, there's a fascinating story behind BitGo moving from you know $25 million worth of Bitcoin on a computer stored under your couch. But where I want to start today is you were really early at Netscape. I think you were at Netscape in the mid 90s. I saw that you worked for Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, reported up to him as your product manager. Can you just tell us what it was like working at Netscape in those early days? Sure. Well, actually, I mean, if you want to focus on small company and entrepreneurial type of things. In some ways, it's, it's, it's nicer to go back a little bit farther. So yeah, I, I've been into computer science programming since I was, I don't know, 11 or 12. Programmed baseball statistics software and put up on BBSs before there's an internet, things like that. Naturally, I majored in computer science, got my degree in 1993, so there's my age. Was thinking about what I wanted to do next and HP offered me a lot of money to go and be one of their early, uh, one of their younger engineers. Um, HP was a pretty old company by, by 1993. And, and 1993, you're, you're, you're right out of college, right? This is your first job out of college? Yeah. Nice. So I went, I went to HP and you know, the people were super nice and they were all HP lifers and they loved the HP way. And HP is a very nice company, but wow, it was a big company. And uh, I remember a couple days into my job, leaving work that day and going to my car and kind of sitting back and taking a big sigh like, oh, why did I do this? But um, a, a year and a half later or so, you know, Netscape had started started to boom and I was lucky enough to get a job there. And it was uh, eye-opening for young kid, doesn't really know what business is. You know, I'd been doing some programming, kind of a guy in a cubicle, but uh, getting to Netscape was just, you know, complete different. And, and of course, my parents at the time were all concerned. They're like, why would you leave this nice, stable job? You know, generationally, there was a cultural divide about like, what do you do with your career? Um, and things are so different today than they were you know, for, for my parents. And you're going to this company, Netscape. We never heard of Netscape. What's that? What? 200 people? What? Uh, they, they were shocked. It was before we had like this whole you know, startups and S Silicon Valley kind of at, at that size um, getting so much prominence. But it opened my eyes. It was like, it was, it was 
completely, you know, no safety nets, nobody there to tell you what to do. You just got to go figure it out. And I was just having fun and I was trying to make the web server go fast. And at that point, web servers were static pages and images and I mean, so trivial by today's standards. And I was just sitting there doing system call traces and, you know, low level stuff. Um, but I figured out how to make it go kind of fast. And, and I kept telling product managers, uh, uh, David Pan, you know, Ben Horowitz, et cetera, but they weren't really that interested. And then, then one day Microsoft un unleashed their own uh, IIS Internet Information Server, right? To the throwdown to, to, to start whacking down um, Netscape. I, I don't know if you remember, Bill Gates had, had put out a sea change article to his Microsoft employees to rally the troops that like, guys, the world just changed on us and we better get on it. So anyway, they came out you know, with full force against Netscape with uh, both the browser and server products. And IS was super fast. They modified the kernel to do you know, direct sending out on a, on a socket of web data um, straight from a, a, a file on disk, and it, it was it was quick. So all of a sudden, uh, all these product managers descended upon my desk because they knew I had been working on performance, and they're like, can "Show us what you can do." And you know the numbers were actually pretty pretty close already. And anyway, Netscape was fun. You could you could kind of do what whatever it is that that interests you, and so that gave me a, a, a taste for small companies that uh, it's never left me. Um, there's just something about when you don't have that many people around you, the onus is on you. And sometimes that's figuring out what you should do. Sometimes that's you know research. Sometimes that's straight up execution. But people that are smart, I think, uh, generally like kind of having open open territory territory to go explore. For the listeners who don't know about kind of the uh, the quote unquote browser wars, why was Netscape so important? Well, Nets Netscape was was the kickstart of, of the browser, right? They were trying to build this this um, World Wide Web protocol. There was this rough idea of maybe it could work, um, and uh, it turns out that you know it was the application, the killer app for for the internet. I remember at that time uh, being in the car and seeing a URL on a, on a bulletin board for the first time. It kind of bewildered. All this stuff that they've been working on, and, and who would have thought that it would have national, and then not just national, but international, global um, footprint. So, you know, they really did change the world, um, which was incredibly exciting to see them as part of that, and then to even be a little part of it. And it's like, you know. So, so, so before, before Netscape, what, what, what existed, right? What, how did you access the web? <laughs> well, the internet existed, uh, out there originally on, on university and you know military machines. Actually, the first access I had to um, uh, to the internet was uh, a guy who probably uh, probably wasn't allowed to share his password with me, but um, <laughs> he was a friend of my father's who, who worked at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, which is closely affiliated with uh, the University of California, although it's funded by DOE. And uh, you know, basically there was a dial-up, and you could connect to this thing, and then that was the internet. And you know, basically it had Usenet on it, and that was about it. Not very, not very interesting. So the days before the internet was was dial-up, um, and then from dial-up, you know, AOL emerged. A lot of uh, families were able to start communicating with email on, on that. Um, and and dial-up was, you know, you you call somebody's computer, and the phone might be busy, and you sit and you put it on auto redial until finally you hear the noise and and, and you get online. And then eventually the internet did uh, start to get opened up to corporations um, uh, in a more free manner. Um, and, uh, uh, and then the web browser started to make sense. Um, eventually everybody had dial-up connectivity to uh, a point of presence would take you on hmm. connected to the internet. 1998, you leave Netscape. Why'd you leave? 
Um, a lot of complicated reasons, I guess. Um, I'd been there for a few years, probably didn't know what I was doing, went on to another startup. Um, Netscape was a blast. I, I loved it. Um, I had uh, grown from being kind of a junior engineer to a senior engineer and then a manager, was managing a pretty big team. I don't know, for some reason, you know, I, I got I got plucked away to go to go do something else. And uh, it was felt like a good time to go. We're going to fast forward like 20 years and then we'll pull it back a, a second. But, you know, a lot of these early um, Netscape folks are now investing, right? You've got Mark, Mark and Ben are obviously Andreessen Horowitz and a lot of the other folks are angel investing or launch venture firms. You've still just kept trucking with the entrepreneurial route. What is it about building companies that you like so much? Well, I'm a builder. I mean, some people, um, I guess, ha have different interests. Um, I think building is the hardest one. Uh, it really is the, 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 the place with no safety nets, so to speak. Um, figuring out how to create something out of nothing is, is something I've enjoyed. I'm probably a bit more of a, an engineer than, than some of the folks that you mentioned that are, are more combinations. They're probably a bunch better businessmen than, than I am. Some people, they, they do a lot of building, and then they end up graduating kind of into advising and incubating others, and they find that fun. Um, I, I like to build. <laughs> so at some point, you went to Microsoft. After that, I think you went to Google. These are pretty much the only two companies that could have written a new web protocol, and you chose to go to both of them. What Can you tell us a little bit about the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 2005, just what that era was like as these companies are competing and Google starting to kind of take over? What, what, did, what did that look like and what did that feel like back then? Well, we, we had the, the dot-com boom era, which was the late 90s. I guess you'd probably say it, it, it probably boomed in, in 99, right? Um, and so there'd been just like all kinds of crazy uh, companies that were created that didn't really have a great business model um, and, and everybody said this can't go on forever and yet those, there was this cra crazy hype around all of it. Um, by the way, in, in the digital asset space, I think you could make some parallels between what's going on with ICOs um, and, and what happened back then. Sometimes you have a new technology and everybody's eager to like deploy it in interesting ways and figure out use cases and there's a lot of experimentation that happens where you know, people are creating all kinds of new innovative ways for how you might run businesses or grocery delivery over the web and things like that. And a lot of the early ones fail. Um, and that's exactly what's going on with, with some of the um, decentralized finance that's going on right now is that there's a lot out there, um, probably as much junk that won't list, last for more than a couple of years as there is um, reasonable. Um, so that's pretty normal. So post-1999, uh, then things got a little bit tougher um, in, in the tech space, you saw you know, a lot less, a lot of value had deflated out of the market. Uh, a lot fewer companies were getting started quite right then. Um, but Silicon Valley was still a place where people do software, and so there's a lot of new ideas. And I created a company with, uh, with my friend Eric Hahn uh, called Lookout Software, which you know, was a, an early email search program. So at the time, we said it was like Google for email. And, and people kind of looked at us funny, like, why would you want Google in your email? Um, but uh, once you tried it, you, you got it. Like, you just type in the search bar, and then boom, in, up comes your, your messages. And it turns out that indexing your email is, is actually quite a bit different than indexing your, um, your web pages, uh, the, the way you want things sorted, and the, the way the human brain thinks about finding messages is different. So I don't know, those early years of 2000s, I think, was filled with a lot of innovation still going on. A lot of companies were still being born. Um, but the euphoria of kind of, you know, stupid, dumb money coming at, you know, any old idea with, with not very good business models 
was gone. The other thing is internet advertising, uh, kind of in the late 90s, people thought it wasn't going to work really at all. I think it took a little while to kind of sort it out, and Google helped pioneer a fair amount of that. The, the, the late 90s had a lot of you know, banner advertising, things going on. The models hadn't quite been figured out, and it took a few iterations before that really became a reasonable way to, to, to fund good businesses. And then the way I got to Microsoft was by they bought that, that email search company um, that was called Lookout. Mm. Email, it was kind of search for email like a, like a Gmail, or what are we talking here? Yeah, it was Gmail before Gmail existed, right? So hmm. actually, you know what, Gmail was getting uh, created just around that time. Um, it, it certainly wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. Yeah, I think um, Gmail was like 2004, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it would have been right around there, right? So yeah, we did uh, we did look out 2004 to 2006, um, but this was just focused on just um, just search on top of Outlook and and um, and whatnot, which was the the dominant you know fat client for email that people were using at the time. So 2004, you get acquired by Microsoft. You join Microsoft. You're there for I don't know two two years, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. You then go to Google. What what happened in those two years at Microsoft? What impressed me about Microsoft is, you know, for such a huge company, they had so many passionate people. Now, the epicenter of Microsoft the, is Redmond. It's the it's the heart. It's the the soul. Um, you go up to Redmond, and you know, I mean, of course, the campus is huge and distributed, but um, uh, tremendous energy. Just walking down the halls, you can just feel it. Um, a very exciting place to be. Um, I wasn't there. I was here at Silicon Valley campus, which is. You know, there were a number of companies. Uh, I think Web TV was one of them. I can't remember the others. The PowerPoint division was down here. Much more different, much different culture. Uh, a lot quieter, a lot lower pace, slower pace, a lot uh, less energy. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as fun for me. Um, there's certainly some people that, that enjoyed Microsoft and, and, and wanted to be here. For me, it wasn't so good. Um, did some uh, did a project and then kind of it got moved up to Redmond and so you have to switch to another project that gets moved up to Redmond and then after a couple of cycles of that I said okay maybe I'll hmm. check out something else and uh, Google at the time kept surprising everybody they just kept beating quarterly reports you know um, quarter after quarter they had these huge engineering teams with like a hundred people for a single manager and I was very curious about wait 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 how can you do this like. It's very different from the way we're building software in the 90s and, and even the early 2000s. Google had taken a very different take. Um, so I kind of wanted to go see that, and I ended up over there. And I was very lucky. Um, they just were getting started in a stealth project. Um, didn't have a name yet, but ultimately that, that project was going to be Chrome. So I was one of the first guys on the, on the Chrome team. Um, just very lucky to get there at the right time. You mentioned Google had a different approach to engineering. What does this mean? Well, they had these huge teams, right? And I mean, I, I think you could almost say that Google was engineering run amok. They had a, a good process for kind of re- re- continuous search for great people and, and to filter out the not as good ones. So they kept the bar really high for quite a while. And then once you got in, actually the structure around it was much more, you know, you go figure out your job. You go figure out how to make the world great. It was kind of surprising. I think, you know, it really is an example of where small companies growing into big companies they just need constant growth growth carries everything and it's it's really true whether you're you know the one or two guys just getting started whether you're 10 guys you know you've got to constantly be growing and they managed to do that at a very high clip um, it's you know how they got to be so big but it covers up a lot of sins so I say engineering run amok I mean obviously tremendous amount of 
fantastic product was coming out of that uh, unorganized, disorganized uh, engineering teams. Um, but uh, that was because it, you know, they, they managed to find ways to just keep growing. Um, and it worked well. What was the biggest thing you learned while working at Google back then? They had done a lot of uh, in-house tooling, but the, the, the either, either lucky or super genius uh, concept that they came up with early is like, all right, you're the first 10 guys on this project. How are you going to make it so that you can have a thousand developers on this project? You know, usually when you think about the word scale, you think about scaling your software. You think about, you know, how do you support more requests per second or more users or more transactions, whatever. But actually, what about the scale of development? And I think Google thought about this um, in a much more intelligent way than, than most other companies did. Maybe it was a, a natural byproduct of software just getting more complex with large numbers of developers. We actually did talk about like, okay, how is this going to work? We have a thousand developers. And it's kind of funny to laugh about it. Like you got, you know, 15 people around the table and you're, you're joking about a thousand developers. But today it's there, right? They actually do have that. I have two questions just to close the loop on these kind of early days. Uh, the first one being, why did Netscape fail? Um, you know, did it fail? I'm not sure it failed. I wouldn't say that. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. I suppose that's some definition of fail. Um, how, how did how did it, let me rephrase? How did it end? Actually, what what ended up? How did it phase out? And Google and kind of Microsoft came in. Um, it was the early days of the internet. I think you know how to build large teams that scale. Um, we didn't really know how to do it, and we hired a tremendous number of people for a big business opportunity, and didn't have um, enough organization. And people were just stepping all over each other. The tools were much harder then. You you didn't have certainly didn't have Git right. Um, and, and, and so a lot of lessons have been learned out of that software. Um, but Netscape had to go through a phase where it like just had to learn how to build software. And that was very painful. And it slowed that company way, way down. Um, and in the meantime, Microsoft had already figured out how to have, you know, thousands of developers work on a common project. So they were able to come in with the second mover advantage, also with a tremendous amount of resource um, and, uh, and, and kind of steal it away. Um, you know, don't forget, however, that Microsoft actually abused its power, right? Microsoft is a convicted monopolist and, you know, almost broke, broken up um, in those late 90s. Uh, and what they did was intentionally, you know, um, throttle back what, what Netscape could have done. So Netscape, you know, it is what it is, I guess, in, in history now. Uh, we certainly had our internal problems with growing the team from, you know, hundreds to thousands. Um, but uh, fierce competition, very, very well-resourced competition, um, that, that'll get you. What was it like working with Mark Andreessen? Everyone knows him as the investor today, but most people um, don't know his founder stories back then. Yeah, so I, I worked with him a little bit. You know, when I left, he took me out to lunch. Um, uh, I didn't work with him a ton. Did you go to Mark and Ben when it came time to raise capital for BitGo? You know, I didn't. It's a regret. I wish I had. Really? Yeah, hmm. um, you know it just didn't quite work that way. When uh, when Bitco was raising money, um, uh, I don't think Andreessen was was as into crypto as they are now. Um, they 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 got the the bug uh, after after that, but also my my business partner at the time. Um, you know, raising money is hard. You you, you go and you you pitch it to a, a number of folks, um, and uh, you know it has a little bit of an organic nature to and of itself. So I can't remember if I. If, if I, I didn't connect, if we partially connected, um, but uh, I, I do wish that, uh, that we had gotten 
a more serious way back then. You mentioned you said your business partner back then is that Ben uh, Davenport? <laughs> no, um, uh, I mean the history is is, is long. So I, I created BitGo um, myself. I wrote the first version in the summer actually. Of let, let, let's go there to start. I think it, I think it'd be nice to share the story of uh, the 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 millions of Bitcoin on a computer, and and then we can kind of progress. I think that'd be helpful <laughs> for the audience. All right. Um, uh, well, let's see. I mean, I, I got interested in, Bit, in Bitcoin before BitGo, um, and uh, like everybody, it takes you too long to figure it all out. Um, but eventually, I, I, I did get in, into it, and I started trying to more or less hack it, um, find a hole in it, you know, figure out how this can't work. A very engineering-minded uh, approach, I suppose. Um, and everything I looked at, I, you know, I couldn't find any holes, and um, in, to the contrary, I just got more and more more interested. Some of my friends from previous companies and some some investors and whatnot, um, they started getting interested too because I told them it was cool, and uh, uh, they started buying. And so, being the technical guy, they they handed the storage of this crazy you know digital asset to me, um, and we didn't have very good tooling at the time, uh, so I just did it as a cold storage on my laptop. Um, I kind of created my own thing, played around with vanity addresses and stupid things like that for a little while. Um, but uh, yeah, left that on, on my, my, my laptop at home and uh, it didn't take very long before that became worth a tremendous amount of money and I was afraid that, you know, I would lose that laptop. How much money are we talking here, Mike? It was about $25, $30 million. It wasn't, yeah, it's it wasn't a, a, it's a lot of well, It's a lot of money. <laughs> it, it was for the time um, and I do remember writing, you know, my own software for moving some of those transactions. A funny story, the f it was big to me at the time because uh, it was just me. I didn't have like a full company behind me. I was moving like 30000 bucks, And uh, I had written the software that was doing the transaction. Of course, I tested it. Um, and it got out on the blockchain and just kind of stuck there. It wouldn't get confirmed. A couple hours went by. Back in those days, the way that the, uh, the, the prioritization of transaction was done is a little bit different than it is today. And the the ultimate problem was I had a a young input, which made it a low priority transaction. It was going to take a long time to pick up. And uh, I, I, I was I was really nervous. It was a scary day. It's not my money. It's 30,000 bucks. I didn't want to lose it. You know, it's my software. And uh, But at that time, the Bitcoin environment was a much more friendly environment. There was a, uh, a, um, a group called Bitcoin Wizards, which is where a lot of the early, you know, great Bitcoin developers were. And I, I got on there and they didn't really know who I was. And I say I had stuck transaction. They said, ah, probably low priority, whatever. And then I told them how much it was for, and, and it kind of raised their eyebrows. Like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Because there weren't that many $30,000 transactions at that time. Um, it wasn't huge, huge, but but it was big enough. And um, uh, uh, Slush picked it up and actually hand-mined it for me to, to get it through, and it was very nice. Wow. It would have gone through eventually, but he, he helped me out. That, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I've heard the early days of kind of, you know, the Bitcoin talk forum and um, just the early days of kind of the Bitcoin wizards and the, and the early developers were it was a very friendly bunch of people who were really willing to, to lend a hand. Yeah, I mean, at that point, everybody was helping each other. Um, people just were, were like minded hobbyists almost uh, trying to figure out, you know, what can this thing do and not do and trying to understand it. I mean, it was, it was a new set of concepts on every level, whether you're talking about the crypto that's in it or the mining that's in it, um, how the how the coin is distributed, the blockchain, how it works, and um, you know, scalability was something we were talking about even even back then. So 
but but everybody was just on the same page and trying to figure out how to make it work. It was it was um, quite pleasant. Can you share any of the early uh, kind of developers from that bunch of folks? Are any of them kind of bigger names in the crypto space now? Or, you know, an extension of that would be, are any of the, you know, 25 million, 30 million dollars is a lot of Bitcoin back in 2013, 2014. Are any of those friends who sent you Bitcoin, are they big investors, big founders of crypto companies today? Would would our audience know any of those folks? Yeah, I'm not going to give their names, but you would definitely recognize their names. Um, uh, their names are, the, you know, in kind of our circles are around there. The, the developers are, that were on the Bitcoin Wizards channel at the time, um, I wasn't holding their Bitcoin at all. Uh, but, you know, Greg Maxwell was over there. Peter Woolley was over there. Um, Matt Corallo was over there. I mean, it's actually the same early Bitcoin guys. These guys have been doing it for a really long time. People forget that they've stuck with it um, uh, for as long as they have. It's impressive. Um, okay, so you've got all this Bitcoin You've got 25, 30 million on a computer, storing it under the bed, under the couch. This, as the story goes, you realize you need a safer way to store this stuff. And that's how BitGo was created. Is that that kind of the genesis block of BitGo? Yeah, that's here? right. So, so at the time, those were all single signature addresses. Um, you know, so the private keys, I had, I had created them by provisioning a laptop manually that had never been connected to the Internet. And uh, I used some USB to move some software between it. Um, you know, it was kind of hokey, but um, I'd taken the steps as best I could kind of at that time and, and, and commensurate for, for that value. Um, by the way, some of those wallets are still out there. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, there's a, a set of them that are using that technology that um, are quite large. Um, wow. But, uh, uh, yeah, so I was afraid, you know, like, okay, when I turn this thing on, like, am I going to lose it? So at Google, it had a fair amount of data about just the rise and rise of malware, and it's a up into the right exponential spread problem that probably still is today. Um, so I was afraid like, gee, if I ever do try to, to move these coins, are they going to be worth a lot of money? I'm going to get get them lost uh, right away. Um, and so that led me to find, uh, do a lot of research and find a little corner of the Bitcoin network that hadn't really been used, which was, uh, was what is multi-sig, but it's P2SH, which is pay to script hash. Um, it had been deployed and, and, and pushed forward by Gavin Andreessen, I think about a year earlier, if I recall. But nobody had picked it up. And so I thought, you know, we ought to be able to use this to make a really effective, no single point of failure wallet. And uh, I, I wrote up a little description of it. I wouldn't even call it a white paper. But I went back to the to the Wizards group and I kind of shared it there. And a couple guys said, yeah, this looks great. Um, and uh, Gavin Andreessen uh, said, I would use it. I would pay for it. Um, so that, that's, that's where Bitco comes from. Paint me the picture. Are you, is this, you're working another job at this point and this is nights and weekends. Are you kind of just hanging out, exploring Bitcoin full time these days? Like what, what, what were you doing back then? No, I was, I was exploring Bitcoin full time here. So, um, uh, I had left Google and in the summer of 2013, I was, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I, I didn't originally know it was going to be a Bitcoin related thing, but, um, obviously it turned out that way so it was just just me coding uh, i was coding the server side i was coding the early you know website um and 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 building the first version of it i launched that in august of, of 2013 as kind of a little cheesy consumer uh wallet um didn't quite know where bitco was going to go from there the the early people that picked it up people were quite encouraged they were like oh great this is a multi-sig thing i get it and you know it took a fair amount of technology understanding um, to understand why it was useful, 
Uh, there was some confusion about what was called a web wallet or a hosted wallet. Um, prior to BitGo, there had been a number of people that had built you know, web-based wallets on single signature, but when you do that, you're basically handing your private key to some guy that's running a server, and they get hacked. It happened over and over again. Um, and this wasn't that, but it looked the same because you're just loading up a web page. It looks like a web wallet. But what was actually happening is you had a key that was um, being used in a secure way in your browser on your local computer, separate from the key that was being used on the server side of, of things. So um, anyway, a number of people tried it out, and, that, and those that understood it really gave me a lot of encouragement. But of course, naturally, it, uh, it led towards people that had larger amounts of, of Bitcoin. And you know, today, the way we do key provisioning and the, the, the controls and the options are like you know, night and day advanced from, from where they were back, back then. But the basic principle is still the same. You know, it's about eliminating single points of failure so that you, know, you, you don't have to worry about having malware on one machine that's not going to be able to steal your Bitcoin. What did the space look like back then? Because Coinbase, I think, had just come out of Y Combinator around that time. There was... Um... Uh, Peter's company, uh, blockchain.com, if I remember correctly, was was around back then. What, what what did this base look like for those who maybe have come in later? Can you kind of paint a picture of what it looked like? Well, yeah, kind of at that time, actually, one of the biggest applications was a thing called Satoshi Dice. Satoshi Dice was a way to uh, to, to place bets in a way that you know, the house always wins, I guess. Um, but, you know, you could roll dice and, and, and win Bitcoin. Um, and it actually was consuming at one point, I forget, like 40% of all Bitcoin transactions were just people playing Satoshi dice. And he figured out a way to mathematically prove that he wasn't cheating. Um, so the rules were fair um, and you, you could roll dice and, and you could either win or lose. Um, anyway, it was quite, quite successful for the time and cheesy little, little thing, but, uh, but it definitely worked. Um, and there's a lot of other gaming attempts, um, not just attempts, games that have been built on blockchains where you can now start to prove that actually the other side is, is playing fair. Um, I think there's even been some poker endeavors to do so. Um, I, I, I haven't followed that entire wing of what you could do, do with blockchains. Eric probably has, has more information. That was out there. BitInstant was, was, uh, was live. Mt. Gox was live. Uh, BitPay was around. Um, I think a lot of the early Bitcoin that I bought was at a company called TradeHill, which was going to be kind of a dark pool. So a lot of the companies that you see today were around. Uh, Coinbase went after you know retail exchange, um, which turned out to be a pretty pretty good lucrative uh, path to take. Um, but yeah, it was it was a healthy, vibrant vibrant time. Let's transition a little. Talk about kind of BitGo and the future of BitGo. Um, I, while I was doing my research, I came across a stat that I wanted to uh, just verify with you. More on-chain transactions happen with BitGo than any company out there. I think the number I saw was twenty percent of. Uh, on-chain Bitcoin transactions are happening through BitGo. Is that true? Uh, almost. 20% uh, by value go through through BitGo. It's actually a little bit higher. Um, and uh, the, the number of transactions, I think, is in the, the 6 to 8% range. Um, but remember, the transactions we deal with are typically the larger transactions. We don't do retail work. We're institutional only. So uh, we see a lot of the skew towards the high end, and that's, that's why the value, so much of it goes through BitGo. But yeah, that's true. We're pretty proud of that. Pretty impressive. What, can I ask why you focus on institutional when so many people are retail focused or retail and institutional? Yeah, well, I mean, first it starts with security, right? Um, you know, so building a solution that's got true security in it, technology is part of it, um, operations and in, in insurance behind it and like all the backstops, making sure that there's no single point of failure. It goes far beyond 
you know, just the, you know, using multi-sig or using MPC or things like that. There's a lot, uh, a lot of different angles to security and it does cost money. So um, who's willing to pay for high-end security? Well, typically it's people that have a lot of value to be secured. Um, so it just kind of skews that way. That's really how we, we ended up there. And there's a lot of talk about institutional access into crypto, which is great, but let's be real. Like what is an institution, right? Um, and up until just recently, you know, are we really talking about institutions coming into crypto? Are we talking businesses? Well, it's a spectrum, right? And and uh, and what we started out with several years ago was, you know, businesses starting to come in, and of course some crypto dedicated hedge fund hedge funds, and then of course some large high net worth individuals. Um, and then where we're going towards is trying to get the most conservative of players. We want to get pension funds, right? We want to get endowments. We want to get, um, you know, institutional folks. Um, so it's all a spectrum and we're moving toward it. But definitely when you're starting to build a professional um, security-centric approach, the people that you're going to attract is, is going to be that side. Now, why do that? Um, there's a lot of people that are really excited about Bitcoin because it's decentralized and what that means for retail. I'm excited about that too. Individuals and retail people get the same privileges as what banks get, which is phenomenal, right? You don't have to have this middleman in your way. Um, but I'll also tell you that I've seen this over the years over and over again, where you know, somebody starts out with a relatively modest amount of Bitcoin, and when it turns into a million dollars, they start saying, I don't want to hold this anymore. I need somebody that's a professional. I need someone that's going to be a fiduciary on my behalf. Um, I'm looking for something like BitGo. So as in, in order to have a financial system, if we really want to have the impact of changing the way finance works, everybody has to participate. And some people are going to participate from a business angle, right? So we've seen folks like Tesla coming in and putting it on their corporate balance sheet. Are they going to have a ledger device in the CFO's sock drawer? No, I don't think so. They're going to need a bank, right? And that's what they're opting for. So um, the, the reason for it is because we believe we need to have the high end be able to have access to digital assets so that when the low end actually moves into the high end, which is what's going to happen with this democratization of money, um, that's how they're going to be able to, to exist. Um, and retain that wealth, not just, you know, from a security perspective on their own, but also, you know, in case something should happen to them, um, be able to share with their spouse and their kids and um, be able to act in a fiduciary way. I don't mean to comment BitGo's business here, but I really want your opinion here. Are we not just creating the same traditional financial system with the walled gardens and a few people holding all of the assets? We're absolutely not building that. And if we end up building that, you know, I will feel like I wasted a heck of a lot of time. Um, look, you know, blockchains offer a new level of transparency that we've never seen before. And it's going to allow us to de-risk some of these monetary systems that, you know, as you learn more about how they work, it becomes just ever uh, uh, increasingly appalling. Um, so, you know, we, we talk a lot in an abstract way about the 2008 crisis and could it have been averted um, if we had a financial system that was built differently. Um, there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Some of it's true, some of it's not. But you know, when it comes to um, transparency and, and leverage and the same mistakes that we make over and over again, yeah, there are some pieces that are really problematic. One of them we saw just a few weeks ago with GameStop and Robinhood. And there was a lot of brouhaha about you know, why did Robinhood have to turn it down? Was it, you know, pressure from Citadel or was it something else? Look, one of the things that was was strained heavily in that relationship with all that volume is 
the credit lines and T plus two settlement that was going on. Settlement should not have to exist. If you go back in time, you know, back to the 1920s and how people were trading stocks, right? We didn't have computers back then, right? Uh, maybe limited phones, but for the most part, people met in a common place and then they traded in pits, right? And they, they did all kinds of exchanges. And they could take these tickets and they could write them down and each guy writes down a ticket. Those two tickets have to be matched and then later in the day, they match the tickets and they figure out how to settle the money. Um, and if you tried to settle the money by, hey, you're going to get my stock and I'm going to get your cash with each trade, it would be very slow to do these trades and these guys need to be able to trade fast. One thing that traders have figured out how to do over time is trade faster and faster and faster. So typically you've kind of got this mechanism through an exchange where buyers and sellers can come together, they can trade, and then it drops into settlement, which takes time later. And when you don't have electronic uh, 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 assets, that's your, your only choice and the movement of cash is always slow. Um, so what's evolved over time is a, a fairly sophisticated market structure, for better or worse. It's got about six or seven middlemen in it. You know, buyers and sellers have their own brokers and buyers and sellers have their own banks and custodians and then there's a clearinghouse that sits in the middle and kind of net settles everything. We actually don't need that with digital assets. Um, and this T plus two notion is, um, it, it means time of the trade plus two days, T plus one is, you know, one day. Um, it's the time period that you allot the parties to, you know, settle their trades. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's so colossally slow. So what happened a few weeks ago with GameStop is that they had a relationship where they had to settle credit lines with T plus two. That means the two counterparties that are trading together don't really know what the exposure is for a period of two days. But Robinhood's off trying to build this real-time 24-7 mass retail um, exchange product, right? Well, the stocks don't trade that. They don't trade 24-7, and yet, you know, they're trying to create a simulated version of that. Um, and during this T plus two period, you know, the other side doesn't actually know uh, what the exposure is kind of over at Robinhood. So eventually this will cause strain, and this will cause problems. And when markets move really fast, this will break over and over and over again. It's an example of what we can fix. So part of getting mass adoption of digital assets is making sure that you meet the mental, mental metaphor of how institutions in Wall Street work. We gotta, in order to bring them into the fold, we have to give them uh, products that, that they can understand roughly how it works. And this is part of why it's been slow, so slow to adopt digital assets. But if we just do that and we recreate clearinghouses as they used to exist, we will have done a lot less than we could have done. Um, we can make real-time settlement happen, which absolutely reduces risk. It would eliminate a big part of what happened with Robinhood and GameStop. And so we'll get there. I want to touch on one kind of key point there. I, uh, in doing a little prep for this podcast, I spoke with a large, a large fund to fund manager who was pretty involved in with Bernie Madoff actually, and lost about 70% of his assets with Bernie Madoff. And he said, you're speaking with Mike Belshi. You have to ask Mike about his opinion on, you know, in financial markets, you mentioned these five, six, seven, eight intermediaries, right? And, and we're saying with, you know, T plus two settlement times, that's a bad thing. In crypto, a lot of the financial intermediaries are the same, right? So what you see is you have billion dollar exchanges that are all one and the same. In the traditional worlds, if you went to an exchange and said the exchange is going to custody all your assets, that would never that would never fly with the SEC, right? And that was kind of the reason I bring up Bernie Madoff. That was the thing with Bernie is with Madoff is that, you know, if he had a qualified custodian, that never could have happened. Can you why, why, why was 
this fund to fund manager telling me to ask you about this? Well, I don't know. I, I sometimes use Bernie in my stories. Um, so Madoff, you know, was famously trading in a Ponzi scheme, and he said he had all these assets. Um, he has publicly said, you know, since he's been arrested, he said, look, if my clients had required me to use a custodian, um, I couldn't have perpetrated the crime. Um, so you, you can look that one up. You'll find it on, on Google. Um, so it's just a fact that you, you need that. The the bad news about the, the legacy market structure is that it's got too many participants. But why does it exist? I mean, it actually does exist with good intention to try to solve um, risks for investors. And one of the basics is putting some checks and balances in so that you can see whether or not you know the money's really there. The first commissioner of the SEC was uh, was Joe Kennedy, so JFK's father, right? Um, he was trading all through the 20s, and he did fabulously well as a trader. Now, we didn't have the SEC before then, right? Um, and he would get all his buddies together and pump and dump schemes and insider information. He, he was a great trader. So after we had the stock market crash, you know, the politicians started to say, hey, we need to put some protections in to, to fix this. They said, okay, we're going to create this thing called the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission. Who are we going to get to run it? Well, let's go hire this guy who was the guy that knew how to abuse the hell out of the old system and help get, have and have him help us fix some of that. So, you know, he was instrumental with some of the early securities laws, the 1940 Acts, um, which we still have today. They've been they've been modified and amended, and you know, things are quite a bit different. But um, the very premise of it is called the 1940 Act, right? Why? Because it was it was enacted way back uh, under under his era. So. Uh, look, the existing market structure exists to protect investors in a number of ways. Um, it's got flaws, right? It's not perfect. Um, we all know that. But the alternative is what we have in crypto, um, which is a completely verticalized stack where an exchange acts as the exchange, but they also act as the broker for the buyer, the broker for the seller, the clearinghouse, the bank. They take on every function. Now, this is extremely efficient. Some companies take that and then they put leverage in it, which you know you can you can automate so cleanly because you're the only party. There's no dependency on anybody else. There's no T plus two. You can basically do 100x leverage. Oh, you heard of exchange doing that? And it's like a big casino is what it is. The only reason they're able to do that is because they are every role in the market structure. So crypto absolutely has uh, a destiny with a better market structure than where we're at today. Like, you know, if if the owners of, of uh, New York Stock Exchange, which is the ICE, right, if they, if they walked into the SEC and said, hey, we want to custody assets at the exchange, the SEC would just laugh them out of the room. It's, just, it's a non-starter, right? You never have exchanges hold assets. And how many exchanges have we seen blow up that were holding assets, right? I mean, Malcox, Gox, right? CoinCheck, Rodriguez EX, uh, Bitfinex was hacked. I mean, all these guys, right? And, and why is that? Are they, are they bad? Is it fundamentally destined to be that way? No. Turns out security of assets, you know, is hard. Um, it's a specialized function. It's different than running a retail exchange where you're trying to sign up 100,000 users a day to go uh, trade. Um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, domain expertise uh, in, in how you would secure, secure, secure assets. But more importantly, it's checks and balances, right? Pretty much every single exchange hack, uh, you know, all the way back to, to Mt. Gox, if you had separated the function of the exchange from the storage of the assets, you would have somebody to be able to tell you whether or not the assets were in, were there, um, who was independent of the exchange, um, and you would know much more in advance. So, you know, Mt. Gox continued to operate after they were in a fractional reserve capacity. 
a custodian could have told him that. Uh, Quadriga CX's CEO ran off with the money or died in India or something mysterious. <laughs> um, you know, turns out there's no money in Quadriga CX. Could have known that. And so um, anyway, I think there's there's no doubt that um, digital asset exchanges are going to have to move to this model. You've got some exchanges already doing that. So ErisX, you might be familiar with, you know, CFTC regulated um, and, and they're licensed and they, they separate the exchange from the holding of their assets. Um, um, I want to start to wrap this up and talk a little bit more about just you on a personal level and what you're thinking about these days. Um, we talked about you kind of were CTO and you've now moved into C the CEO role. You have over a hundred open positions. If I saw that correctly on BitGo, yeah. how do you, how do you manage all of this, Mike? How do you manage hundreds of, you know, over a hundred positions and a huge team? You talked about Google having to scale to over a thousand developers. What, you know, is that, is that possible in BitGo's future? How do you manage this? I mean, the best thing that you can do is hire really smart people around you. Um, you, you need to have people that are uh, very capable and capable and competent in their, in their field uh, that are managing, you know, their areas of the business. Um, and then, then, then you can manage it all. Couldn't do it without, you know, fantastic leaders around me um, to, to help carry um, a huge uh, burden in, in everything that we do. Hiring 100 people is is great. I mean, we're excited about that. We think that you know the digital asset space is graduating to a new level. Um, I do think that BitGo as a custodian is going to be larger than some of the in, incumbent uh, custodians in traditional assets um, before those companies are even getting into into crypto. Um, I think that's already starting to happen um, just due to, to our recent growth. But you know, overall, still a relatively small size. A few hundred people is relatively manageable. Um, main thing: get great people around you. There was a Bloomberg article a few months ago about PayPal acquiring BitGo, and I, I'm not sure if that was a rumor or what happened. I'm not, I'm not going to grill you on that, but how frequently, if you don't mind me asking, do you receive acquisitions offers from these more traditional players? I mean, every bank, uh, every fintech company is exploring digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum right now, um, and they have been for several years. Um, so it's a matter of like, when are they going to come in because they feel that the regulatory risk combined with the client demand is at the right crossover where, you know, they, they should get in. Um, I think we're going to see a tremendous movement this year from all of the incumbents. And the ones that are behind are looking, of course, to figure out how to get a jump start. Um, and they, they want to be able to move their businesses forward quickly. Uh, and so, yeah, they're, they're acquisitive. Um, so... Uh, I expect we'll continue to see them. Uh, it's pretty much constant noise, I guess I would say. Um, and uh, it's flattering. As, as a founder, just on a personal note, and for a lot of the other founders listening to this, for a founder who's building a, a very successful company, you know, one of the biggest and most successful companies in crypto, I'm sure you get offers and pitches all the time to do partnerships and invest and in acquisitions. How do you prioritize, you know, those kind of pitches while also building the business? And how do you know what to take seriously and how do you know when to actually engage with those folks? Well, I don't know. I think you got to try to talk to ev almost everybody. I mean, it, of course, you've got to have a filtering function and, and everyone can. There's, there's some basic things that, you know, certain, certain types of opportunities are too small to pursue. But, um, you know, th this, this entire industry is building and it is changing unbelievably fast. Um, it is a global market for sure. Um, with all kinds of 
new innovations, new blockchains, new changes all the time, new competitors all the time. So actually, I think one of the things you have to do as a business leader is figure out how to basically talk to almost all of them. Um, it may sound like a boring answer or uh, too simplistic of an answer, but you know we, we do try to take all those calls. And then once, once you um, listen to what somebody's suggestion, idea, proposal is, you know, most of the time the answer is no. Um, as, as CEO, you know, you can probably predict what my answer is to any question, no. Um, <laughs> that's actually kind of the job. There's too many things that come. So you can default towards that uh, a long time ago, um, realize that, you know, a, a good leader is able to make decisions with only 20% of the information to do so. Um, and, and, and that's a challenge. So, I mean, you got to be able to figure out how to move quickly and be decisive. Um, and uh, default to no. I love that. Um, I asked the same three questions to everyone to wrap this up, and then I'll let you ask me one question if you'd like. The first question is, what's the most controversial decision that you've had to make at BitGo? Um, probably people inside of BitGo will, will know about, about this one, but um, most people outside of BitGo don't, don't see it as much. We started as a technology company, and we are a financial services firm today. Um, we still have a technology platform. Uh, we still have a, a tremendous amount of business, which is purely on the security and technology wallet platform. Um, but we are a financial services firm, and that's where you go from being a tech company to a regulated entity. Um, it is a, it's a night and day switch. Um, it's not for everybody. Uh, some of the people that you have won't fit. Some people that you have aren't the people you need. Some people are just missing. Um, it's it's a big change. So you know you go to your board, you talk to them about, hey, how would you like to go and you know be probed by, you know this regulator or that? And they're like, eh, no, thank you. Um, can we do something else, please? Um, so it's a controversial decision. It's a big change. And you know some could actually argue. You could say, oh well, that seems like a pivot. I don't think so. Um, I think businesses have to figure out how to grow and evolve. We didn't change kind of the fundamentals of of what we do. But of course, everything about the company has to change in terms of delivery of, of that. So it's one thing to give out the technology and other people operate it. And, and now today, you know, as a financial services firm, we'll still sell you the technology. You want to use it, you, you can build it. And in fact, it's better than ever because we know for a fact how to build it right because we actually build it so that we can operate it. So a lot of the, the tooling and, and more subtle things that you wouldn't discover, um, we now know. But th that's, that's a huge change for us that we went through. Who are you learning from these days, either in person or mentors or online? Uh, read a lot, I guess, is my recommendation. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of it. Uh, you know, you got to figure out how to absorb a lot of information. Um, if, uh, if you don't naturally do that, um, I, think, I, I think you will fall behind. I think I'm behind, um, frankly. Maybe as you get older, you realize you'll, you'll always be just incredibly behind. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know. I, I think my sources are, are many. Um, of course, I've got some people that I would call mentors and friends um, that are high-level senior positions at various firms, and uh, they help me tremendously. Um, but I think the number one thing is you read a lot. Any favorite books to recommend for the audience? Well, I have a bunch of them. In the past, I, I've talked about some psychological books that I thought, thought were interesting. Um, at the business side, John Doerr's got one called... Um, uh, I forgot his name of his book, but it's the OKR book. It's yeah. pretty famous. Do you, do you um, follow OKRs at BitGo? A, a variant of them, yes, but but not not exactly as prescribed in, in, in that book. I don't know. Then most recently, I guess I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk about a semi-fiction book. Actually, uh, a guy used to work at BitGo. He wrote a book called um, 
Confessions of a Crypto Millionaire, um, hmm. <laughs> which I read recently, um, which was enjoyable. Awesome. Uh, my last question would be, who would you say is the most impressive entrepreneur um, right now or, or that you've met along your kind of storied career, either inside of crypto or outside of crypto? I mean, if you're in tech at all, I mean, you, you got to give the, the mantle to, uh, to Elon Musk. I mean, Jesus Christ, that guy uh, <laughs> has done the most ambitious companies, you know, three, three at a time, um, and the hits keep on coming. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he's, he's pretty inspirational. I can't, I, can't, I can't cite anyone that's even close. Let you, uh, we can finish this up with one question for me if you, want to, uh, if you want to take it, or you can let me off the hook easy. Uh, no, I'll ask you. So, so what, is, what is your goal with it, this podcast as it relates to digital assets? Um, there's a lot of, you know, as the price goes up, right, today it's at 52,000. Basically, you know, volatility and price movement drives adoption. We all know that. As the price goes up, and, you know, we're all betting that this thing continues to go up, more and more people come into the space, millions of new people coming into the space. They, they look to learn about Bitcoin, they learn about Ethereum, they start learning about DeFi. There are incredible stories about the founders who have worked their asses off to actually build this industry when it was really small, right? We have millions of people in the space now. When you got into the space, space there was maybe, I don't know, 1,000, 10,000, less than 100,000 people in the space, that's for sure. And so I just, you know, with this podcast, I just want to make sure that those stories don't you know, go untold. And it's, it's my goal to basically highlight the, the founders who are building this new industry that we're all kind of, you know, really betting our lives on here. Cool. Well, you know, good luck with, with that. I think um, sometimes people look for too much advice from other founders or existing founders. Um, it's only uh, within each person. You can't copy somebody else's path to your own success. So get in that. it, go do it, go build. You'll I love okay. that. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate the time. All right. Nice talking with you, Jason. Take care. That was Mike Belshi. I'm Jason Yenowitz. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Yenowitz. Uh, my DMs are open. Let me know what you thought of the episode. If you want to have one of your favorite co-founders or founders or builders or entrepreneurs on Empire, let me know, send their name to me in a DM on Twitter, shoot me an email, add me on LinkedIn. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know who you think I should have on the show. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so now. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. All right, see you next time.